Welcome to episode 34. We are nine months in and still adding listeners to the podcast. This week, we added another state and country, bringing the total number of states to 36 in, tw- in, Kona, in 266 cities across 24 countries. If everyone would share the podcast with one new person, that would be awesome. And there might be a prize. Okay, there's not a prize, and you'll have my heartfelt gratitude, though, and I have to pause because Kona's knocking over the microphone. Last week, I ended with my fascination of American products that were sold in stores and pharmacies, and that grew to my suspicions that some of the products being sold, especially on the streets and in smaller shops, might be black marketed. At the time in Korea, the main products that were typically on the black market were liquor, cigarettes, and products from companies like Johnson & Johnson and P&G. In addition, Ken Bryson, who was one of the guests from two weeks ago, is back to share more experiences that we shared together. Joanne, her friend Kim, Ken, and I spent some memorable times together. One of the activities we did was playing the Korean game of GoStop, called Gotri. I'm posting a photo of the cards in this week's episodes. Not only is it a fun game, it was cool to learn to play a game that we would see being played on the street tables or sidewalks. So here's the black market story that ended my tracking down of suspected illegal products. In hindsight, I'm not sure why this became something I decided to investigate all on my own. Let's chalk it up to, well, let's just chalk it up. So I would see cases of liquor stacked in a corner or other products that would garner a little suspicion, especially when the store only sold very popular brands and not a more typical selection of cheaper liquor, for example. I would ask questions about the products as a potential customer to gain a little confidence, and then I would try to get more information and put the pieces together. Sometimes they would get a little suspicious, and being a fairly quick thinker, I would say something that would ease their concern, like turning to a, turning the conversation to a completely different product in the store. Being inquisitive was not uncommon among American customers, so that usually worked. Anyway, I also would be sure that I knew where the exits were and try to be aware of my surroundings. One time, there was clearly black marketed liquor in a store, and it was on a very busy shopping district in Seoul. I made the mistake of moving too far into the store in posing my questions because I was really interested in getting some information. Two guys became pretty suspicious. One grabbed my arm, and I quickly started moving toward the exit, which was at the front of the store. He had a pretty good hold on me, and the other guy tried to grab my legs. I'm sure my adrenaline was really pumping, and I was able to keep inching toward the door with my feet. It seemed like forever, and all I wanted to do was make continuous progress to the front. Once I got within earshot of the street, I shouted calling, Police! Police! That got the attention of passerbys, and the guy released his grip on me, and yet still tried to pursue me as I stumbled into the street. A taxi driver was at the curb and yelled at me to get in his cab, and he quickly drove me away. Oh my goodness! It was really close. The taxi driver, by chance, worked on the army base nearby and realized I was an American who needed help. 
he wouldn't take any money and was just being a good Samaritan. For a couple of moments, I was sure I wasn't going to make it out of there either, either really beat up or even alive. Anyway, I told my boss about the close call the next day. He knew I had a fascination with figuring out black marketers, and after this he convinced me just to let it go. I gave the information I had to the OSI on base and wondered if it helped them tackle the problem. When my exploring wasn't on my own, Ken and I did a lot together. Let's bring Ken in and share where the beginning of our friendship started. So I'm happy to have Ken Bryson again this week, and we're going to talk a little bit about what we experienced in Korea. So Ken, do you remember how we met at Osan? Well, um, I remember we were both lieutenants, and you came up to me and said, hey, we were at OTS together. And I was like, what? What? I I don't remember either, and that's why I asked the question, because I think <laughs> I think it was something like that. And I don't know how I knew that you were at OTS with me because I don't remember, I didn't know you at OTS. So um, I was wondering about that. And my sense might be that there were not that many support second lieutenants. And so maybe that might have been also part of the, part of the equation. Yeah, I was, I was trying to remember because we didn't show up at the same time. I think I went through orientation before you went through orientation for in-country, right? When did you arrive in-country? Uh, October oh. of 87. I'm sorry, October of which? 87. So you arrived after I did. I got there in May of 87. Oh, okay. So... Anyway, well, it's also always, always interesting to try to figure out that starting point. Ken's bride, Haiti, came to Korea for a few weeks, in part because when you're on a short tour, it's much easier for your spouse to come to Korea than for the member to take leave back to the United States. Let's hear from him about that part of the experience. When your wife, Haiti, came to Korea, do you have a favorite memory of exploring Korea with her? Oh, Oh man, so many awesome memories. That was the that was the first time that uh, she was out of the United States. Uh, first time uh, out of her element. Um, for your viewer or your listeners, you know my wife is Caucasian, uh, and in just kind of taking her and putting her in a country of Asians and travel the way you and I traveled in the subways, and since we'd been there for six months we were used to the the crowds everything it shocked her it really really shocked her and we were able to have for the first time really deep cool discussions about the cultural differences between how she grew up and how i grew up how asians and now united states treat things differently and and of course we tempered it with a lot of shopping which she loved because korea at that time had a a lot of great shopping and and she loved all that and then kind of the uh, cherry on top was when we went out to the Holt orphanage and uh, she got to experience all the cool things that were out there and you know how she is with babies boy having her in that environment around all those kids uh, it, it was if you talk to her she would tell you it was one of the best trips we have ever had in our entire lives well, I'm really glad to hear that. And I agree. I know we had some good times when she came out. 
And that is one thing that I have said my entire adult life is every American citizen should go to another country, and it can be an English-speaking country, should go to another country and experience something other than what they have here. And I got a feeling they will be a lot more appreciative of how American life is, that it's not better than others. It's just different. And we've learned to live with that. And you probably won't complain as much when you see some countries have less than you might have, um, have a different system of government, a system of society. And I got a feeling that it would be a really good thing. Was there a favorite um, attraction that she uh, really liked when she was in Korea? Well, you know, Haiti loves her shopping. And I would say the attraction for her was anytime we walked around the streets and she was able to pop in and out of all those little shops and you know, at that time we'd had, we had three of our four kids and one of them was under a year old. So she was buying shoes and clothes for like the 16 years for all of them. So I remember that, and especially like the Namdama markets. There, I mean, there are so many stores that have children's clothes and it's, it's nice. It's really cool. Cause it's a little bit different than what you can get in the United States. And yet, um, especially for children, they go out of it so quickly. Yep, and she loved the prices, and she really loved the mink blankets. I had, at one time, about six mink blanket, blankets. I only have one left. It's my absolute favorite, because I've gave some, some, most of them away, um, because most people don't know what a mink blanket is, but they are the most yeah. awesome blankets, and I have one still. It's, it's a light tan one, um, and it's my absolute favorite. We also did a lot of learning about the wonderful sites, especially those that included the history and culture of Korea. For example, the Korean village that we went with Joanne was a little like what you see at Colonial Williamsburg if you've been there. There are reenactments and recreations of life of yesteryear to include seeing how the Korean people lived, farmed, as well as the dress and customs of celebrations like weddings and festivals. One very memorable trip was the National Museum of Korea. Let's go back to a conversation with Ken about that trip. It was really great, of course, having fun on the base. We also got out a lot uh, into Songtan and went to Seoul and went to the folks from Holt and uh, the friends that we made there. I remember, though, one special trip. We went to the National Museum of Korea, and by chance, we went there on the holiday where everybody goes there to honor the past. And I don't know if... Do you remember that event? I remember it extremely well. The um, Well, and you don't know this, but that event for me actually built the foundation of how I approach things, especially from a leadership perception or perspective uh, for the rest of my career. That was a really big trip to me. And uh, I remember how angry you got because it was about the uh, Japanese <laughs> occupation of Korea, which I, I at that time I had uh, I didn't have a full understanding of how brutal the Japanese were with the Koreans. And like like we've talked about before, I grew up in a Japanese uh, neighborhood type of thing. So and watched Japanese movies and walking around that museum with those big pictures. And at first, uh reading it and well horrified about the executions and what the soldiers were doing there 
and then watching you walk faster and faster from picture to picture and getting angry at I I realized wow I have always seen this as you know a Japanese takeover of anything especially in, in feudal Japan that you know when you kill your enemy that was supposed to be the right thing to do and then when I saw it in true human terms and saw the perspective of that I realized how really warped my sense of that history was and what it was doing to you and everybody else that was walking around there so uh, I, I have very I don't want to come across that it was a bad thing because it was really good I used it a lot in in my leadership talks with the lieutenants and captains that were under me in the future and I always used it when I thought about what was going on if it was a UCMJ action or something about what the whole story was and what both sides were and how it impacted the people that uh, the actions I mean decades later how those people were feeling about those actions so a very very important trip a life trip for me it it was truly life changing and uh i won't tell you all the stories about you tom about how you used to tell the shop owners i was japanese when when you wanted to get out of the store so they would kick me out but no they didn't do that no that's well i'm glad you learned a leadership lesson because i am you know leaving a leadership professor that was my full intent as you probably know um no i that was that was the most amazing thing for me because i knew nothing i mean my parents um taught us a little bit about some of the Korean traditions, but never about the history of Korea. And I didn't know anything about the history of Korea. And I didn't know about the Japanese occupation and there, that there were more than one. And you're right, it wasn't just pictures. They were dioramas with life-size um, figures of showing some of this brut brutality and, and how they burned the forest so they couldn't have paper and they killed lineages of families and 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 I knew you were half Japanese and I was like, oh my god, this is the enemy. <laughs> well I um I was mad at you for a bit, uh, you know, unfairly, but um it was it was great learning for me and it was um uh, something that I think that it what's important maybe for my listeners today is that you know we talk we hear in the news and about people who talk about their heritage and how they know about something, especially with Ancestry.com. They're learning some th new things about the backgrounds of their families. And if you don't really know where that roots are coming from, then maybe you need to learn yourself and kind of just learn from them. And, you know, that's what all these these months about Asian American History Month and Black History Month, yeah. Women's History, it's all about learning about some of those um, background and roots from where people come from. So it was a learning experience for me, and I do remember I was I was pretty upset. Well, and, and I agree with you a hundred percent because it wasn't until that point in my life that I realized, depending on who wrote the history and who was telling the story of that history, you, whether you were getting the whole story. And like you said, today as people learn more about other backgrounds and cultures. It's critically important to study and learn about it from that culture's perspective. We were both pretty adventurous with exploring the food in Korea, and especially street food. Not only was it plentiful, it was inexpensive and a great way to test things because you could buy like one pancake or a very small portion of different items that you may not be especially familiar with. 
One of my first experiences was with donuts. There was a very aromatic bakery shop and the donuts looked absolutely yummy. I chose a sugar-coated donut that looked like it was filled and eagerly bit into it. Oh my! I figured the filling would be a cream filling or a fruit filling. It was filled with red bean paste. Now, it is a favorite among locals, and yet, for me, it was quite the surprise. They say the paste is sweet, and I'll assure you that it's not the kind of sweet that an American would expect. I found photos of these donuts and will post it. Another famous Korean dish is bibimbap. Some of you may have had this, as it is served both in Korean restaurants and Pan-Asian restaurants in America, as well as restaurants that I visited around the world in my travels in Koreatown. It's served in a hot clay pot and is like a little buffet with the ingredients separated on the top that you mix yourself into the rice bed. It's very attractive and usually comes with a fried egg on top in Korea. In the United States, I've seen it more often with a scrambled egg strips instead. While I'm not a super fan, it's very popular. You've also heard of and may have enjoyed kimchi. Kimchi in the United States is typically winter kimchi made from cabbage. There are so many different side dishes in Korea called kimchi. With a typical Korean meal, you would get between three and six, sometimes more, different kinds of kimchi. I've learned that my two favorites are scallion kimchi and even more so cucumber kimchi or oe kimchi. In fact, I learned how to make my own during the pandemic and would often blend scallion and cucumbers into my own recipe. It's great because it's quick to make and is ready to eat in a day or so. I'm salivating just thinking about making some more. What isn't typical is to ask for extra portions of a specific kimchi that you really like. Well, I still would do it because it was so delicious. Back at our base, our division admin tech was Mr. Kim. He often invited me to his home and after checking to see how I should best address this because I was a member of the leadership team, I got clearance to accept his invitation to his home for dinner. It was a very memorable experience. His wife prepared a feast of Korean dishes and everyone was delicious. For me, it was wonderful to see the inside of a Korean home as well as enjoy a home-cooked Korean meal. Mr. Kim had two children, one boy and one girl. Because I was a guest, we ate in a more typical Korean fashion. Mr. Kim, his young son, and I ate at one table, and Mrs. Kim and their young daughter ate at another. I was at first taken back and at the same time understood and had an experience that helped me further my own personal exploration of my past. I invited his family to the base and we dined at the officers club. We often would invite Korean guests to the officers club, not only because it was a beautiful new facility, it was a fairly typical American dining experience and our Korean friends enjoyed that experience as well. Let's go back to Ken and see what his favorites were. Well, Ken, I'm so glad that you joined me again for this episode. I want to ask you another, the last question about what your favorite street food was. Mine was chopche. And what was one of the treasures that you brought back from Korea that still reminds you of your time there? 
Wow, this is a this is an easy question, but uh, I can answer it so many different ways. Uh, the food, yakimandu from the yakimandu lady on the corner right outside the gate. I knew you were uh, going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, but that was my absolute favorite. And uh, if your listeners don't know what that is, they need to look that up because that is some of the best food around. <laughs> I so remember you and the mandu because well, it was good. Let's be fair, but uh, you love those so so much. And like I said, for me, it was the chop che. I I still love chop che. If I go to a Korean restaurant, that's the first thing I look for is is chop che. Although here it's a lot more than a dollar fifty for a plate. <laughs> so what was the what was one of your treasures that you bought brought back from Korea? Well, as you know, we brought back a lot of stuff from Korea, but the one thing that always brings back the fondest memories is the little it's a little plastic token of the uh of the tiger for the uh, olympics and i believe you actually gave that to me we i think we picked it up at a little street vendor when we were running around the olympics right before i left country and uh that little plastic i can't remember what the, the character's name was do you remember that uh, uh, well, i think it's hotri i think so yeah so he's a, it's a, it's a little plastic uh, token with him on it, like a keychain type token. And when I look at that, I remember all the great stuff that we did, all the great bus trips and getting the tickets for the Olympics. And uh, when I tell people what you and I did, watching so many different Olympic events, uh, they're amazed. And it's something that no one will be able to do again because of the way the world is now. Yeah, I have. I still have my tickets uh, souvenir, souvenirs, and I remember you. And I'm sure you do. We 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 decided to go up at the last minute, and we got tickets to some of the track and fields, diving, swimming, and um, the best part was that they had a rule that Koreans could only drive on even or odd days, depending on the last number of their license plate. But since we were USFK, we could drive any days, and people weren't driving, and we zipped right up to Seoul. I think you remember. I remember that very well, and I really remember we paid like a equivalent of about fifteen dollars for those tickets to the track and field, and we watched Joiner win the uh, gold. We watched Joiner, and we watched Johnson have win a gold that was retracted. Exactly, and we were sitting what maybe fifteen oh, rows. We were so close. We take pictures. When you see see the pictures, you you can tell how close how close you are. That was that was just amazing and and i'm so you know it's like one of those things that you go oh my gosh it's gonna be too busy and i'm not sure and then you're going you know what we're here how many other uh, times you're going to get to go to the olympics for me never again so far so it was really truly um amazing yep a great a great time great memories well ken again thank you so much for joining the podcast my pleasure my friend i'm sure you heard hearing from ken and i'm again grateful in addition to team spirit 88 facilities being built and renovated, there was a lapse between the chiefs of MWR at Suwon Air Base, so I was detailed as the acting chief of MWR for two months. This was a great experience and the chance to further gain leadership experience and put a mark on a base program. At the same time, I did some of my own responsibilities at Osan to include garnering $150,000 in discretionary funds from 7th Air Force. At the time, it was a feat lauded by the wing commander. Like any short tour, it goes by fast. It's very busy, sometimes hectic, and my time was exceptionally full 
as I continued to volunteer at Holt, and despite my close call in Seoul, just enjoyed being in Korea, observing and learning just about everything that I could experience. I was glad that I took the assignment. I've had a lot of opportunities and tried to make the most of them. It paid off in garnering quite a bit of recognition. I earned an award that for me was one of the most treasured in my Air Force career. I was named as a 7th Air Force Company Grade Officer of the Year. Of course, that meant I was also the Osan Air Base Company Grade Officer of the Year. Being a support officer, and especially an MWR officer, this is an award that not always generally goes to a rated officer or an officer on the operational side of the mission. This is especially true at an overseas base. Typically, as a first lieutenant, your appraisal is endorsed by the next two officers in the chain of command. For me, that would be the group commander and then the wing commander. When I won this award, they skipped the wing commander and it was endorsed by the 7th Air Force vice commander, and that was my first general officer endorsement. This was a feat. In addition to garnering the 7th Air Force CGO of the Year, for the second time in my short career, I am nominated as the Operations Officer of the Year for my Major Air Command and won as the PACAF Operations Officer of the Year. Two years and two major command awards? This was awesome. 1988 was turning out to be a very good year. Next week, we'll finish up in Korea. We have another really exciting event that was unprecedented. You'll learn why I took time to explain the various groups of the personnel assigned to Osan early in this segment. There is another big surprise, and I'll leave it at that. After all, I have to have some kind of hook for next week, and I say that with an evil grin. I'm dedicating this episode to Mr. Kim and his family. Not only was he an amazing employee, he shared an experience that I have treasured all of these years, and that is the best kind of gift. Until next week, go have some chapchae and kimchi. Be well and enjoy spring. The cherry blossoms are in full bloom here in the D.C. area, and that is the start of our tourist season.